Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would use your word to speak mightily into our hearts, that we might grow and change, become more like Christ. Uh, We're excited to learn more about this church um, that you have given to us and that we are a part of, that we are. Pray in Jesus' name, Amen. You're just that's it. I think Pastor Matt said you're dismissed. Well, not not quite yet. <laughs> In a little bit here. Um, how many of you would say you've had you have a, a dream car that you'd like to own? Anyone here? You'd say you got a dream car. Anyone have a dream vacation spot they'd like to? Go to. I see some hands that went up right away back there. Where's that, Emily? Disney World. Okay. Brandy, it looked like your hand went up. Jamaica. Okay. What about dream car? Dream car. Shout it out to me. A dream car. Hondas. Is Ethan here? I thought. I, oh, there he is. How can I miss you? I don't have. Yeah, Ethan's showing, I need to be wearing my glasses more, but anyway, it, I, I heard another one over here. Lamborghini. Lamborghini, okay, I thought I saw you drive up to church today in that, Larry, but I guess I was wrong. It wasn't, okay. Yeah, we have our, we have, you know, maybe you look at the newspaper, you look online at different websites, you have your dream home, your dream car, your dream vacation. There's a lot in our world that throws things at you that kind of make it seem like some things are ideal. Uh, maybe the picture of, that somebody tries to show you of what should be a dream spouse, but it's only like a little picture in time of when you see that person. You don't see them on their bad days. You don't see them through the difficulties of life. What about this? What would a dream church look like? This, there, amen, I like that. You just took my illustration away. You know, maybe you think in a dream church, you would, you would have your ideal coffee bar out there in the hallway. Services would end right on time. Maybe in your dream church, sermons would be 20 minutes. Maybe in a dream church, your sermons, the sermons preached would be an hour and 20 minutes. Here you go, amen. I'm liking this. Great crowd today. Maybe in a dream church, they sing all of the songs you like to sing. Maybe that would be hymns. Maybe that would be choruses. Maybe that would be newer songs. Maybe that would be older songs. Maybe in a dream church, they would have the, the children's or the teens program that you would want. Or, or maybe the Wednesday night program that you would want. Or the service schedule that you've always dreamed of. Maybe you think that's your dream church. But here's the great truth about it. We don't have to dream about what a church should be. We have the ultimate authority in God's word. We're going to take the next several weeks. We might be doing this into April, possibly May. 
And we're going to look at God's blueprint for the church. And we're going to ask today the question that I asked before I was saved, what exactly is a church? What is a local church? What should a church look like? And who makes up a church? Now, I want to say this, that I don't think anybody joins a church with the idea that says, I would love to be a part of a really bad church. I don't know anyone who says that, or anyone who says something like this, I would love to be a bad member in a church, or I'd like to be a divisive member in a church. I don't think people come into churches with that kind of mindset. But if you were to ask the average person, what is the purpose of a church? Why do churches exist? I think you'd get a number of different answers. Some would say this, a church is a support group. That's what a church should be. It should be a support group. Well, in some ways it is, but that's not the main purpose of a church. Others would say that church is a glorified social club, that you have your other different clubs in life, and then you have a church. Some would say that a church exists to meet their needs. Whatever needs they have, the church is there to meet those needs. Having talked to uh, several people from, from Europe and you ask them about church in Europe, uh, when you ask them, okay, what is church like there? They say nobody there goes. And the purpose of church in Europe is twofold. One is to have your babies baptized and the second one is to go to a wedding, to get married. And then there might be a third purpose that I've noticed that people just go there to tour church buildings when the impressive architecture and the nice buildings from centuries past. But I would submit to you this, if you were following scripture, the word of God, you would have one conclusion as to what the one central purpose of a church is, and that is to make disciples. It's to glorify God by making disciples. And so this is what we're going to look at today. I want you to take your Bible, and uh, you might be in Matthew 28. Turn over to Ephesians 2, and we're going to be there in just a little bit. Uh, so what is the church? And I want to give you just a background for, I think, the majority here. This is going to be review, but it's a good review. It's a necessary review. It's helpful for us to look at this again and understand why exactly we're here and, and why uh, God wants us to gather together as an assembly. So what is a church? Well, in the New Testament, we have the Greek word ekklesia, and it's used in two different ways. It's where we get our word ecclesiastical from. So you have in one sense it's used regarding the universal church, or what some theologians call the invisible church. And this makes up all Christians, all believers in the church age, where you and I are living right now. From the day of Pentecost until the day Jesus returns for his church at the rapture. Then you have the local church. This is where this word is used the most. This word, ecclesia, is primarily referring to a local church setting when you get to the New Testament. Now, the original readers of the New Testament, when they saw that word ecclesia, they would have thought this. They would have thought of a congregation. They would have thought of an assembly. And the way the Bible uses this word, it's primarily referring to what we're doing right now, to Christians of all different nationalities, all different backgrounds, coming together to worship one Savior, to sit under his word, to sing, to pray, to give, to encourage, to help one another, at, at times to, to practice loving, restorative church discipline. 
This is what God has as his idea of the church. Now, consequently, again, we want to follow what the word of God says. If we're going to look at the Bible and understand from Scripture what exactly is a local church, you're going to understand this. The church is not primarily a building. Amen? It's not primarily a building. It is not a socioeconomic political organization. It is not a social club. It is not a club that's based on race or ethnicity, and it's really not even based primarily on the language we speak or even our our country's nationality. It's not based on that. It is based on the common one accord, the unity that we have in Christ. As God's called, 1 Peter 2.9, God's called people set apart for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we together represent a people who have been called by God to faith in his son Jesus Christ as a result who've been led by God's spirit to do that. And I'm quoting there, in a, in a sense, paraphrasing our church covenant that we just went over in our church membership class. So here's where we're going with this today in the four points we'll be looking at. The church is a people, not a place or a building. Can you say that with me? The church is a people, not a place or a building. So think about this. If you were to take a poll of residents of Southeast Iowa, and you were to ask them, what is a church, or, or what do you want in a church? How many of you think you'd get all kinds of different ideas on that? I mean, just all kinds of opinions as to what they want and how they want church to work and, and, and all kinds of ideas as to what they think they should hear from sermons and things of that nature. But if you go to the Bible, if you go back to the authority, the inerrancy, the sufficiency of Scripture, you get one. And that is the church's mission is to glorify God by making disciples. And we're going to look today as to how Scripture defines what a local church is. This is not the normal way you would probably hear Pastor Mike preach. We're going to have a lot of moving parts to today's sermon, and we're going to look at several different passages. So I want you to follow along with me and uh, over the next few weeks, and you want to be prepared uh, first for tonight. I'm going to give you some good reasons why we should go to church, and that's going to be from a passage in Hebrews 10. And then next week we're going to ask, what is the best thing the church has going for her? What's the best thing the church has going for her? But today we're going to look at this, that what makes up a local church? First of all is this, the church is made up of forgiven people. The church is made up of forgiven people. Let's look at Ephesians 2, if you would. And I want to read for you some, some verses here in this passage that really do not paint the most flattering picture of, of people who are outside of Christ. I want you to look at these verses. Read these with me slowly. Let the word of God digest in your heart today. And look at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now again, the picture God paints pre-Christ, pre-conversion, is not a real flattering, pretty, rosy picture, but it is reality. This is who we were before God saved us. This is what our spiritual condition was before God saved us. We were dead, blind, and we really had nothing to do with God. And here's what's easy to miss out on here on a Sunday morning. Especially, in most of you, you come to church a lot. And, and some of you do not come to church a lot. We're thankful you're here. We praise God for that. But this is easy to miss on a busy week where you've had a lot of a lot of things to do. It could have been stressful at home. You could have had a lot of stress with your kids. It could have just been one of those weeks. And Sunday morning might have been one of those mornings for you. You made breakfast this morning. You got kids dressed. You got in the car and maybe the outfit you put on one of your children is not wearable to church anymore because breakfast is now on their outfit. And you have to go back in and you have to change things. Or maybe, maybe Sunday morning was a little stressful on your marriage today. Or maybe this week was, was a difficult week financially. And there's a lot of stress and there's a lot of pressure and, and you're wondering how you're going to make it through all of these things. And with all of that in mind, when we come to church, it's easy to forget this. Do you realize what happens here on a Sunday morning is absolutely astounding and miraculous? That people who once were dead and now are made alive come together and gather and worship the true and living God? Does that amaze us? And the fact people who once were hostile to God, to use biblical language, were once enemies of God, have now been made alive together in Christ and are now heirs and children and sons and daughters of God, and now we get to worship Him through the finished work of His Son? And it's not just one class of people, it's all kinds of people. We have older people here, we have younger people here. We have newer Christians, we have older Christians. We have different ethnicities here. We have people where English is not their first language. We have those who grew up in church and those like me who did not grow up in church. You have those who've been in Southeast Iowa your whole life, praise God. You have those who did not grow up in Southeast Iowa. But yet we come together as one new man and woman in Christ to worship the one true and living God. Now how's that possible? It's possible because we're forgiven. And friends, this Sunday morning, this is miraculous. Never take this for granted. In the midst of everything that goes on, we have instruments, we have sound equipment, you have flawed pastors who preach, you have a million different things. You know, you might think, well, the auditorium's too warm, it's too cold, there's a lot of things going on in the outside world. But what's gathering right now, what's happening right now, is truly an astounding miracle. If you're a child of God today, and one time you walked in darkness, and one time you were spiritually blind, and you've been made alive together in Christ, please, friend, never forget, as you gather with other believers, and you gather with other Christians, you're gathering with other people who have been forgiven. And there's some fruit that forgiven people have in their life, and this is lived out in a local church context. So it's one thing to say, yeah, that was me, and now I'm a risen again child of God, 
and I'm a new person in Christ. And it's one thing to say that, but there's some fruit that comes from that. And I want to I show you and demonstrate and give you some passages. Remember, there's a lot of moving parts to this today as to how forgiven people live, okay? And this is fleshed out in a church. First of all, forgiven people admit and confess their sin. I think a month from today, we're having some people join and, and there's going to be some individuals baptized. You've heard me say this before. Uh, they would never be able to join this church if they stood up and said, I am not a sinner, I'm okay, I'm perfect, and everything's going for me. I don't need a savior. I mean, they would not be able to join this church, maybe another church, but not here. But forgiven people take very seriously verses like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 1 John 1, verse 8, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his truth is not in us. But then verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're, we're fallen people, so from time to time we have to confess our sin to one another, as James 5, 16 teaches us. We confess our faults, we confess our sin to each other when that is necessary. This is what forgiven people do. It's fleshed out in their lives. Forgiven people also trust in Christ alone. Look back with me again at verse 5, if you would. And the text teaches you this in the middle there. Made us alive together with Christ. It doesn't say it made you alive together with your baptism or with your church membership, but with Christ. In Christ alone, we trust in him. We are forgiven because of our Savior. We are forgiven because of his finished work. And this is a reminder week after week as we come together. We sing songs that we're familiar with. Many times we hear passages preached we're very familiar with because it's a reminder. I am forgiven in Christ. And also forgiven people want others to know. They don't want it to be kept a secret. If, if we have an opportunity to share our testimony, we want people to know, hey, this is how God saved me. Today in the membership class, this happens every time, and I'm not a super emotional guy, uh, but when I read my testimony, that still moves me quite a bit, to know how God saved me, to know what God has done in my life, and even though we're 26 years after the fact now, that never gets old to me. It never gets old as to what God has done in my life through Christ and what God continues to do with this fallen sinner. And this is why ordinances in a local church, the two ordinances God has given to us, baptism and communion, these are public. They're public. Why? Because we don't want the gospel to be a secret. We want others to see the gospel made visible through the physical acts of the ordinances. That's why baptism is a very physical act, and even communion has physical elements to it. This is to be a public thing. We want others to know we are a new creation in Christ. And also, forgiven people grow and change. Not all at the same pace. It doesn't all look the same in, in, in people's lives, and I, and I get that. There are different levels of maturity. But I know this. A true, born-again individual who's redeemed by the blood of the Lamb will grow. They will grow and change. You know the verse well, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what, friends? Creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the church is one of God's primary means that 
God is ordained for his people to grow and change in the context of a local church. And the last one's this. Forgiven people are forgiving to others. Forgiven people are forgiving to others. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Colossians 3 verse 13, just as God has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. This is a natural outpouring of our lives that a natural fruit, we are forgiving people because God has forgiven us in Christ. This should be the culture of a church. Paul reminding the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 verse 28, if you could read these words with me, please, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is why, friends, we never want to get far away as a church from the gospel. We, we never want to stop reminding ourselves of what God has done for us in Christ. We don't want to get far away from the cross. We don't want to get far away from the empty tomb. We don't want to get far away from the shed blood of Christ to remind ourselves who we are. Who we are in Christ. Now, this is another reminder here that kind of is a, an attachment to this. So when you see your brothers and sisters in Christ, and we come together in church, the people you see are not primarily older than you or younger than you. They're not primarily their occupation or the neighborhood they live in or, or uh, the income level that they have or their educational background. When you and I see each other in Christ, you know what would be real helpful when we see one another is that we see each other as forgiven children of God. Forgiven. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. You know how the song goes, and it's slipping in my mind, so I need to stop while I'm ahead. But when you think of these things, think of this. We see each other as forgiven children of God. Now, this should change how we look at one another in the context of a church, because church life is lived with other people. So we don't see people primarily as an annoyance, as a competition, as a roadblock, as somebody who bothers you. Friends, let's look at one another as forgiven people. They were dead, now they're alive. They were blind, now they see. They once were not children of God, now by God's grace, they are children of God. And that is why as a church, we mandate that you have to have a testimony in order to become a part of our church, because the church is for Christians, forgiven, blood-washed, cleansed, regenerate, accepted, adopted, justified, children of God. We have a great God, don't we? To be a part of a church family that when you come together, you recognize I'm a part of this family only because God in his grace revealed to me I'm a sinner. And I desperately needed God's grace in Christ. I desperately need his help to grow me in Christ. Number two is this. A church is also a group of baptized people. It's a group of baptized people. Turn over to the text that Pastor Matt read just a little bit ago, if you would, in Matthew 28. And let's look here at verse 18 of Matthew 28. I want you to highlight something there, the phrase that you see in the verse there. And Jesus said this, 
And Jesus came and said to them, to give you the context here, he's about to ascend into heaven. They've just seen the resurrected Savior. And he says in verse 18 of Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, it looks like in English, there's a lot of imperatives there. There's a lot of verbs there. But in the Greek, there's only one imperative, and that imperative is to make disciples. You want to highlight that, especially in verse 19. Make disciples. Make disciples of who? Of all nations. And what does that look like? Well, you teach them the gospel, and then they are baptized. Now, part of making disciples is publicly identifying with the gospel, with the Savior, by being publicly baptized. Now, here's a trend that, that I see today, especially in American Christianity. In, in, a, in a Christianity that, that attempts to offend no one or step on anyone's toes, there's a constant trend that we're seeing. And I want to preface it by asking this question. Based on this passage here, would you see baptism as a matter of obedience? And the answer to that would be, yes. Is that an issue of the heart? And the answer to that would be what, friends? Yes. But here's the trend we see in, in, in a lot of circles today, and even from people I love and have deep respect for, where the trend is to downplay the importance of baptism. To tell people it's okay to be a part of a church when, when you're disobedient to the Lord in baptism. Or even to go so far as to say you can serve in various capacities in the church and not be baptized. Or even do this, let people serve in leadership in the church and not be baptized. And then today, what you see here when you look at this passage is, is in many ways this is downplayed. But friends, if baptism is important to Jesus, should baptism be important to us? Let me give you two types of baptism in the New Testament. I don't want you to be confused on this because you read about this when you go through the New Testament. The first one is this. I'll spend some time on this in just a few minutes. It's spirit baptism. This is for every believer. Every believer, at the moment of salvation, God baptizes you into his body. In fact, let's read this verse together in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, together. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. So that's spirit baptism. Not after salvation, but at the very instantaneous moment of salvation. You're baptized into the body of Christ. Then we also see this. This is water baptism. This is where your faith goes public. This is where what happened inwardly goes public for everyone to see. You don't do this to become a Christian, you've heard me say. You do this because you are a Christian. And here's what it signifies. It signifies you're cleansed, you're forgiven, you're washed. You're not ashamed of Jesus. You're not ashamed of the gospel. And even though here at Calvary, when you get baptized, people applaud and they encourage you and they're helpful, that's great. But in many countries, that's not the case. Family disowns you, family turns from you, and you might have the government against you if you were to be publicly baptized. 
But it signifies that you're a new creation. You have new life in Christ. And from my understanding as I read this passage here in Matthew 28 of what I read in the Great Commission, I would see here that baptism is expected of every true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, make disciples. And we're going to be faithful to that. God calls us to a lifetime of public witness. A lifetime of publicly declaring what Christ has done in our lives. So when a church baptizes someone, here's what we're saying. There's so much more going on than just water, people getting wet, and applauding, and family coming, and celebrating. All that's great. But there's something deeper going on. When someone is baptized here, what we're saying is their profession of faith has credibility. It has credibility behind it. They're showing fruit in their lives that they really are a changed creation in Christ. And what baptism is, it's essentially a passport into church membership. I like the way Bobby Jameson in his helpful book called Going Public, his book on baptism, he said this, just as a passport attests someone's citizenship in this country as opposed to all others, so baptism declares a person's citizenship in God's family over against all competing powers. This is why a local church really should be made up not just of forgiven people, but forgiven people who've identified through the waters of baptism with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's also a third component to this. In the local church is made up of spirit-indwelt people. Turn over to uh, Romans 8, if you would. Let's look at Romans 8, and let's dive into an issue that you might hear a lot about. If we were in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, you would have heard more of this. Um, You don't hear it as much anymore, but it's still out there. But there was a real theological issue for the better part of 30 to 40 years, in this country at least, that would ask you something like this. Well, you're saved, but have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? You're saved, but have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Or you're saved, and they would ask you this, have you shown you're really saved by apostolic sign gifts? And we're going to have a whole sermon on this one, like speaking in tongues or different things of that nature. Look at a passage like this, and I want you to see here and understand the way the Bible clearly teaches this. If someone is truly redeemed, they truly have the Spirit of God indwelling them. Look at verse 9 of Romans 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, it's a little unfortunate today that a lot of Christians in sincerity associate a church building with the presence of God. And and I think they do this with pure motives, but it's it's a mistaken understanding of the presence of God. And a lot of this comes from an Old Testament understanding where the presence of God was in a temple or a tabernacle. If you look in the Old Testament, the the Holy Spirit indwelling was basically three things. It was infrequent, 
It was primarily to the leaders of Israel, and it was also for a temporary empowerment as God was transitioning things at various stages through the history of redemption. Now we get to the New Testament. We get specifically to the church age. And I want you to think when the Spirit of God indwells someone at the very moment of salvation, what are some characteristics of that? Let me give you four here, and I want you to highlight this. Number one is this. When God saves you, at that very moment, it's always at the moment of salvation that the Spirit of God indwells that person. You find that here in verse 9 of Romans 8, that if someone doesn't have the Spirit of God, they don't belong to him. And in fact, the promise of a new body in Christ that's going to be raised to walk in newness of life, if the Spirit of God does not live in you, that promise is not there. But praise God, he does live in us who are saved, right? And so that promise of a new body is there. It's also inclusive of all believers. Every single child of God, not just pastors, not just deacons, not just those who may teach a class, but every single truly regenerate child of God has the Spirit of God indwelling them. Third thing is this, it's permanent. He never leaves. He's the seal. He's the guarantee. It's a permanent dwelling. His presence will always be there. And not only that, he's not just there, but he empowers you. As Jesus taught in John chapter 16, I don't have time to unpack this, but you want to look specifically at John 16, verses 6 through 8, where Jesus said, the Spirit convicts you of, of sin and righteousness and judgment. But he's also in John 14, 26, he's a paraclete, he's a helper. He comes alongside you, and he helps you, and he comforts you. Where does the power for holy living come from? The Spirit of God who lives inside of you through the means of God's word as it's taught to you as you read it and also for fruitful service. And friend, you can praise God today. This is true of every truly redeemed child of God. Just as it seems certain members of certain families, everyone's tall and certain members of certain families, they may all have the same skin color. Every member of God's family has the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's not earned. You didn't buy him. He was given to you as a gift of God's grace. Let me give you a couple passages that help us understand this a little bit more. So instead of thinking that you have to go to a temple for God's spirit, friend, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you can read those words with me, please read this out loud with me if you would. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. A few chapters later, or earlier rather, in 1 Corinthians 3, we read these words. Read this together with me. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The third person of the Trinity lives inside of you. That ought to astound us, friends. Everywhere we go, every trial we go through, every temptation we face, God will never leave you. And God will never forsake you. He convicts you, he comforts you, he leads you, he guides you, he illumines your mind as you read scripture. As Charles Spurgeon said years ago, without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without the wind, branches without sap, 
like coals without fire, we are useless. And the Spirit of God leads the people of God primarily through the reading and the proclamation of what? The Word of God. And He will never lead you, never, to contradict the Word of God. And this also means whenever you find the people of God, you find the presence of God. Where's the presence of God, friend? Here. He lives inside of you. What a glorious truth that he lives inside of us, no matter where that is geographically, wherever there's the people of God, you find the presence of God. So the church, it's not the building, it's you. It's the people. God indwells people with the third person of the Trinitarian Godhead who lives inside of us. Not earned, not merited, not deserved, but a gift. God's seal and God's guarantee. There's a fourth aspect as to what is a church, and it's this. The church is your family. The church is your family. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 12, if you would, and this is where we're going to camp for the rest of the sermon. Pastor Matt and I were talking uh, recently this week, and it really, it's something I don't think about a lot, and it's something that didn't dawn on me. Uh, but for him and Marcy, this is the only church their children have ever known. And we came to an agreement, to an occlu- a conclusion that if, uh, and this is nothing, this is not an indictment to our physical families, but if we had a need, a real need as a family, whether it be a physical need, so if I, if I said to the church today, look, my family has no food in our house right now. That is not true. We have more food than we know what to do with, okay? But if I said that, I would probably gain weight next week because of the generosity and the love of our church family. And we were talking about that if, if we had some sort of need, our church family would more than likely be there before other distant family, because we, we don't live close to our family. My family's scattered. My parents are gone. I have no grandparents. My children have no grandparents. So many of you have served in that capacity, and you've done that very well, and I praise God for that. But I want you to look at the imagery that God uses here with understanding that your family as a church. Now, you did not get to choose your earthly family. You did not get to choose who your parents were. You did not get to choose who your grandparents or your siblings were. And friend, um, in case you didn't know this, we don't really get to choose who's going to be a Christian and who's not going to be a Christian. God is the one who places your brothers and sisters in Christ into your life. How many of you realize that? God is the one who does that, and he sovereignly does that. And he does that to bring glory to him, and he also does that so we could grow to be more like Christ. And I want you to look here, and I wish I had another hour and a half to unpack this, but I want to jump down to verse 24, if you would. In fact, the middle of verse 24, 1 Corinthians 12. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be, what, no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, Paul had a purpose 
or purposes for writing 1 Corinthians. You find it right off the bat in chapter 1. There's division in that church. They were a personality-driven church. And so he wanted to correct that. He wanted to say, look, it's not about Apollos. It's not about Cephas. It's not about them. It's about Christ. It's about him. It also had some purity issues in that church. So he, God inspired him to write chapter 5, which deals with a, with a discipline issue in that church. And then there was mass confusion about spiritual gifts. That's why chapter 12 is in your Bible, and that's why chapter 14 is in your Bible. And here, within that context, he deals with this issue that is very clear here. And here's what I want you to see, and here's what I believe God wants us to see in just the short time we have in that passage. We as Christians are members one of another. So let's remember, we're forgiven, we're baptized, we're spirit and dwelt. We're also this. We're members one of another. Here's another passage that highlights this for you. Look at Romans chapter 12, if you would. Let's read together. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Families have members, countries have citizens, companies have shareholders. A church friend, it's a family. It's a family. And according to this text in 1 Corinthians 12, there's, there's many of them that talk about this. I think specifically of Romans 12, verse 15. You weep with those who weep, you rejoice with those who rejoice. So if I'm reading that correctly, our joys and our blessings in life, they're intertwined with one another. We rejoice. I look back, I see Gerald Beavers turns 94 years young today. Praise God for that. We rejoice in that, do we not? God's faithfulness. We rejoice in wedding anniversaries, the birth of children that we just celebrated today. We rejoice when God blesses someone in a great way. We also weep with those who weep. Our hurts, discouragements, we don't beat people down with that. They're all intertwined with each other. Why? Because we're members of the same body. We're members of the same body. We're together in Christ. And if you sincerely and seriously take Want, want to obey the one another commands, the dozens of them in the New Testament? Friends, I, don't, I know you can't do that through a YouTube church or through a podcast church or through a television church or even at your home. Spiritual gifts will be most effectively used in a local church. Loving accountability will be lived out effectively in a church family. The, even the identification of your gifts, primarily, they're identified in a local church. Even submission to, a, to spiritual authority that God has ordained, friends, that's lived out in a local church. Now, some would say this. I've heard this sometimes when uh, I, I try to challenge people about um, the need to be in a church, the need to go to church and even be a part of a church family. And some would say this, they would love their church family or they would love a church family if it would just be a better church or if they would just be a better family. But friend, that is not biblical love. I'd encourage you, think about this for a moment. Don't do this, but think about it, okay? Husbands, if you went home and told your wife you would love her more if she was just a better wife, how do you think that conversation would go? Do, do you think like it would be a benefit if you told your children, I would love you more if you were better? 
Or you told your parents, I would love you more if you were better. Biblical love is this, that you see all the ugly spots in someone's life and, and you see that they've got feet of clay and they're made of dust and you tell them, I am going to love you anyway. Because friends, that's what God has done with us, has he not? That's what God has done for us in Christ. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment with me if you would. Picture the most excruciating trial you've ever gone through in life. Could be the loss of a loved one. Could be the loss of a job. It could be a a physical ailment in your own life where your your health just turns south very, very quickly. Would you be better off as a Christian going through those trials outside of an imperfect church or inside of an imperfect church? And the answer to that is very clear, friend, right? Right? inside an imperfect church. Several weeks before my own mother passed away, she called me and she said, you know, I never took you as kids to church. And my mom was a great lady, but but we never went to church. And she said, I don't know what to do for my funeral. Do you think your pastor could say something at my funeral, at my graveside? Could he do that? And he did. What they saw was a manifestation of a loving church family coming around a family and loving them. Imperfect people, but loving them through a very difficult time. The church you attend, is, it's not a business, it's not a social club, but you know what we are? If we understand the New Testament correctly, we're a family. We don't all look the same. We're not all the same age. We don't all have the same interests. We don't all root for the same sports teams. But as a family, we share each other's joys and we grieve with each other's sorrows because really the mission of the church comes down to this. And I want you to get used to that because you're going to see this a lot in upcoming weeks. It's to make disciples and to be disciples. To make disciples and to be disciples. Because, friends, the church is not primarily a building. It's not a place. It's a people. That's why we could say, I'm so glad that I'm a part of the family of God. Amen, friends? Let's pray. Let's give thanks to God for that, shall we? Father, thank you for your family. Thank you for your children. Thank you for making us your children. And we've been adopted into a family, and we've been brought to faith in you, and and not just in a union with you, but also members of one another. May we understand the implications of that. May we understand, Father, the joy of that, and at times the challenges that come along with that. We love you, Father. We praise you for the truth that you teach in your word about the church. May you find us faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said together.